ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to tell you a bit more about Farm Policy's latest show, Global Reboot, where we look at old problems in new ways as the world emerges from the pandemic. On this week's episode, Farm Policy's editor-in-chief and host, Ravi Agrawal, takes a look at the U.S.-China relationship with the former Prime Minister of Australia and China expert, Kevin Rudd. I hope you'll check it out. Hello, listeners. I'm Amy McKinnon, national security reporter at Farm Policy, and this is Farm Policy Playlist. Each week, we help you make sense of the crazy number of podcasts out there by recommending one podcast from somewhere around the world. This week, I'm featuring the Chicago Council on Global Affairs series, The Deep Dish Podcast, a weekly show dedicated to all things international relations and foreign policy. But they serve it up, much like their pizza, Chicago style. In just a minute, we're going to play their latest episode titled, Is Fear of Great Power Competition in the Arctic Overheated? But first, Brian Hansen, Vice President of the Council for Studies and the host of Deep Dish, will introduce to you, playlist listeners, the episode and how the series came to be. Deep Dish on Global Affairs is designed to be a smart, approachable foreign policy podcast in which we talk to experts about issues shaping our world in terms that are accessible and engaging, whether the topic is new to you or if you follow it closely. Our name is a play on Chicago's famed deep dish pizza, and that's what you can expect in each episode, a deep dive into the layers and complexities that make up the global challenges facing our world. We're living in a truly pivotal moment in history. We're facing tectonic shifts in global power, extraordinarily rapid technological, economic, and social changes, all of which are transforming our world. And many of the ways in which we've understood global affairs and the role of the United States over decades now have been called into question. Deep Dish seeks to help people make sense of these important developments, why they matter, and what can be done to address challenges as well as to seize opportunities. The show is intentionally wide-ranging, because so are the issues and trends that are shaping our world. Each week, we go in depth on a specific issue. Recently, we've done episodes on U.S. military policy toward China, the fragility of global supply chains, Putin's grip on power in Russia, new cyber threats, and how to prevent the next global pandemic. We offer fresh takes that go beyond what you might have heard in the media. So you, our listeners, understand the context and the drivers that are behind not only today's events, but the future as well. We want you to know what to pay attention to. 
what is ephemeral and what's truly important. So you are excited about what you've learned, feel confident in sharing it with colleagues and friends. The episode presented here is on the geopolitics of the Arctic. We chose to do this topic because the melting polar ice cap is transforming the region. Additionally, recent news coverage has focused on this region as a new front for great power competition. And indeed, Russia is investing in the region. China is eyeing their options. And the U.S. Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, recently committed the United States to protect U.S. interests in the region. We wanted to know, how concerned should we be, really, about this remote area as a potential flashpoint of great power competition? Is there truly a new practical geopolitical concern, or is all of this overblown? This topic is a great example of what we want to provide you, our listeners. The tools to recognize trends, dig beneath the daily news headlines, and understand how foreign policy affects the world and your lives. We want you to take away something each week that months later helps you make sense of our ever-changing world. I hope you enjoy the episode. That was Brian Hansen. And here now is the episode, Is Fear of Great Power Competition in the Arctic Overheated? This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. And today, we're tracking the trajectory of great power competition in the Arctic. In a speech to the Arctic Council last week, U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken reaffirmed the U.S.'s commitment to protect American interests in the region. The Arctic, a frigid region of roughly 5.5 million square miles bordering eight countries, is a rising hotbed of competition between the United States, Russia, and even China. As polar ice melt, oil, gas, and mineral reserves, fisheries, and sea routes have become more and more accessible and the world's powers are taking notice. So as the region warms, who holds the advantage? How important is the Arctic to geopolitics really? Could we be headed to a new and very, very cold war? Or are the opportunities for multilateral cooperation there to manage conflicting interests? To answer these questions, I'm talking today with Eugene Rumer. Gene is the Senior Fellow and Director of the Russia and Eurasia Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Welcome to Deep Dish, Gene. It's great to have you here. Very good to be with you. Thank you. And we are also joined by Rebecca Pincus. Rebecca is an Assistant Professor in the Strategic and Operational Research Department in the Center for Naval War Studies at the U.S. Naval War College. Welcome, Rebecca. Great to have you here, too. I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Thanks for having me. So, Rebecca, let me start with you and, and just ask you to do something which is admittedly kind of hard, which is to paint a picture of the Arctic. This isn't a part of the map that most people focus on very much. So you, could you remind us just of the geography of this region? Who borders? Which countries border on the region? Does anyone live up there? Kind of, what, what's a sense of what we need to know? Sure. Um, and that's a really important question to start off with. So um, when we talk about the Arctic region, we're generally referring to the region north of the Arctic Circle. The Arctic Circle is 66 and a half degrees north latitude. And so all of the area lying above that circle is typically what we think of as the Arctic. And that includes the Arctic Ocean, which is the world's smallest ocean. 
It's about um, five times the size of the Mediterranean, for reference, or you know, roughly a fifth of the size of the Indian Ocean. And there's also the landmass of eight Arctic states that surround the Arctic Ocean. The largest Arctic state by landmass is Russia. Russian coastline makes up about half of the Arctic coastline. And then if we work our way around the Arctic basin from Russia, we can go to Alaska. So the United States is an Arctic nation by virtue of Alaska, and then Canada. And then we come to the island of Greenland, which is part of the kingdom of Denmark. Then Iceland, right in the middle of the North Atlantic. And then we have the Scandinavian Peninsula. So Sweden, Finland, and Denmark, and Norway. So those are the eight Arctic states. Again, Greenland is part of the kingdom of Denmark. And um, there's roughly 4 million people living north of the Arctic Circle. Most of them are in Russia. Um, and the Arctic region is characterized by Arctic conditions. So sea ice, which is the dominant feature of the Arctic Ocean, as well as midnight sun. So in the summertime right now, the days are very long. Um, the area above the Arctic Circle is getting 24 hours or nearly 24 hours of daylight. In the wintertime, it's almost entirely dark. Um, and another important thing, which I'm sure everyone realizes about the Arctic, is that it's warming much, much faster than the rest of the world. It's warming faster than anywhere else. There's already about three or four degrees of warming in the Arctic, and that's a result of climate change. And that is causing massive upheavals to you know, all aspects of Arctic ecology. Um, species are changing their distribution. Sea ice is thawing. Um, we're seeing new species move in. We're seeing permafrost, permanently frozen soil melting out, which is creating problems on land. Um, coastal erosion, changing weather patterns. It's just an enormous amount of environmental change taking place in the region. Thank you. That's, that was amazingly succinct and well done. I've got a vivid image in my own mind. Gene, I want to I ask you to kind of build on these layers of understanding of the current situation and, and talk a little bit about the history of competition in this region. This isn't the first time that the Arctic has been a, an area of competition. What should we know about the previous uh, rounds of competition, maybe particularly the Cold War and what, uh, what followed it? Well, uh, and I should say that this was a brilliant description, Rebecca. Thank you for that. Um, but uh, look, um, indeed, uh, the previous era of competition in the Arctic was during the Cold War. And uh, as everything else in the Cold War, it was marked by uh, a, a military uh, standoff between the United States and the Soviet Union. And uh, one of the uh, critical features of that standoff was uh, the location of a large number of Soviet submarines around the Kola Peninsula um, in an area that is mostly above the Arctic Circle. And those submarines were extremely important to the Soviet Union as the weapon of last resort. Uh, if you believe in the nuclear theory, so to speak, then, you know, if one country launches a nuclear strike against the other, superpower, then presumably that second superpower has the ability or should have the ability to deliver a retaliatory strike against the offender. And that constitutes a critical capability with which both countries, the United States and then the Soviet Union, maintain their deterrence and strategic stability throughout 
most of the Cold War. And uh, because um, of the location of critical Soviet naval bases above the Arctic Circle, uh, that area attracted, needless to say, uh, a great deal of attention on the part of the United States. Uh, and we've read uh, about some incredible exploits by our submariners who went deep inside the Soviet territorial waters, literally and figuratively speaking, deep, uh, and explored that area that is so uh, sensitive because of its obvious vulnerability uh, for the Soviet Union into the present day for Russia, because the present day, uh, a large, the, the, the bulk of Russian second strike capability is still based there. So it continues to have a, an important military presence. And, and Rebecca, can you talk a little bit about um, some of the new factors that are driving this competition in the region? You touched on it in terms of, of warming and how that is kind of transforming the possibilities in the region. Could you build on that and give us a sense of kind of what's driving this renewed competition in the area? Sure. I think there's a couple factors to think about. So there's a, a sort of easy assumption that climate change is making it easy to access the rich natural resources of the Arctic region. And there's a lot of hydrocarbons, so oil and gas and coal in the Arctic. There's a lot of minerals. There's strategic minerals like rare earths and uranium. Um, and so, yes, it, it, climate change is making it incrementally easier to access those resources. But we've known about them for a very long time. And new technologies are actually a big part of the reason that um, businesses are more interested in the Arctic because we have better technology for accessing things like offshore oil and gas in the Arctic than we have for decades. We have better technology for accessing, for example, um, cold region minerals, we have better technology. We have new technology that increases the demand for things like rare earths. So the boom in green tech is part of the reason that we're suddenly starting to look north to the Arctic because there's rare earths there. And to a certain extent, there is more hype than there is actual business interest. It is still very difficult to do business in the Arctic region. It's still very cold. The conditions remain very challenging. Um, and so if anybody who wants to go up to the Arctic to dig something out of the earth is going to face higher costs. Now, that's particularly relevant when it comes to a country that's very interested in developing its Arctic resources like Russia. So the Russian government is extremely interested in developing its Arctic resources, which would include hydrocarbons, obviously Russia's hydrocarbon-based economy. And... That combines with climate change increasing access to sort of really spur Russian interest. In other parts of the Arctic region, there is less interest in developing resources. So Canada, for example, is taking a very um, environment-forward approach, and there is a lot less interest in Canada in developing resources. They're much more focused on environmental preservation. So there's great variation around the Arctic basin. Uh, when it comes to the United States, for example, we saw Shell go up to Alaska in 2015, make a big play, and eventually leave because the economics of Arctic oil up off of Alaska's northern coast were not feasible for them. So there is a tremendous amount of variation. 
And it's a combination of increased access and new technology and also geopolitical factors. So I think the picture is a little bit more complicated than people often assume. Um, and it's worth talking about interest in the Arctic on sort of a case-by-case -case basis because so much of it is about geopolitics that you can't make sort of a blanket statement. I think that's, um, I think that's very dangerous because there's a tremendous amount of variation in the region. And some of it is outside actors coming in, right? China obviously gets the most attention. Terrific. So let's unpack some of that. And Jean, let me ask you to talk a little bit about what is Russia doing in the region? Well, to be fair, uh, Russian interest in the Arctic long predates the concern about global warming and this notion that somehow because of global warming, the Arctic is opening up. Uh, it, it is a centuries-long pursuit that is partly connected to Russia's conquest of Siberia beginning in the 16th century. If you really want to dig very deep or far in history. Um, but more recently, um, uh, the attraction uh, has been primarily in the vast resources of oil and gas. And because of the warming conditions in the Arctic have become more accessible and because new technologies have become available, not necessarily to Russia, by the way, because some of those technologies, I believe, are still held mostly by the United States and China, and Russia has only had limited success in developing them. And that's where, jumping somewhat ahead, uh, Russia uh, has had to turn to foreign partners to develop, to reach some of those resources, and this is where U.S. sanctions since 2014, since the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, uh, have put a, let's just say, a wrinkle in Russian plans. Although they're still proceeding aggressively to develop onshore and also offshore resources. Also, I would say with some financing from some of our uh, key allies, but also uh, significantly from China. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, during the Soviet era, uh, Soviet geographers, Soviet scientists, and the Soviet leadership were very, very interested in uh, this idea of exploring the new frontier. In the 1930s, it really captivated uh, the hearts and minds of the Soviet public and became a major feature of Soviet propaganda uh, to um, extol, to promote the, the vision of the Soviet Union as a major Arctic power. Now, during the Stalin years, uh, the Arctic served as a resource base for some critical um, inputs into the Russian economy, including coal. The town of Varkuta was built basically uh, by uh, prisoner labor, slave labor, uh, uh, prisoners in the Gulag, and supplied coal significantly to the Russian economy. Uh, part of the problem that uh, I think Rebecca very helpfully pointed out, is that while some things are becoming more accessible in the Arctic due to global warming, other things are becoming more difficult to access due to global warming. For example, Rebecca mentioned permafrost, which is melting, and it's already triggering uh, major environmental disasters in the Russian far north. Uh, just recently, there was a major fuel spill uh, in, uh, in, in, in near Norilsk. In, um, uh, in, in what is a company town of a major Russian nickel producer, Norilsk Nickel. 
so that's a prime example of the difficulty of developing those resources, even those that are onshore, uh, because the construction costs, transportation costs associated with getting those resources out of the ground and to somewhere where they can be shipped to markets are enormous and likely to be more so. So, Rebecca, to build on on the picture that Jean just painted, um, we talked earlier about military considerations in the region. Um, is this something that's important uh, in terms of, and again, focusing on Russia and what Russia is, is doing, and is it something that uh, we should be concerned about? Yes. Yes, yes, but. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I want to pick up a couple points Please. that Gene made because I think it's really important. And I'm, I'm so glad that, that he placed current developments in sort of a historic context because the Arctic has always been militarized. Um, you know, dating back through the 20th century, it was a tremendously important military theater during the Cold War. So to a certain extent, what's going on now is not new. Um, Russia is building up military capacity in the in its part of the Arctic. And to a certain extent, it is recapitalizing assets and installation that has been declining since 1990. The end of the Cold War. Yes. So, you know, there is some new construction, but a lot of what they're doing is modernizing installations and capabilities that were allowed to rust after the end of the Cold War. And so that's really important. So to a certain extent, there is sort of the recapitalization, modernization piece, and that a big piece of that is the Kola Peninsula, which, as Gene also noted, is sort of the bastion of, you know, Russia's second strike capability and advanced submarines. So that's one piece of it. But then there's another piece, which is about economics. And as Gene also noted, um, the Arctic is a resource base, a strategic resource base for the Russian government. Most of, so, you know, a huge part of Russia's revenue comes from selling oil um, and increasingly natural gas. And a lot of its easy to access oil has already been tapped. So most of Russia's green fields, its sort of future energy resources are in the Arctic, which makes sense because they're sort of the most expensive ones. And so for Russia's economic future, Arctic development is hugely important. It is a core national interest. And part of its development plan is not only to develop these resources, but also to develop a shipping route that runs along Russia's Arctic coastline. It's called the Northern Sea Route, and it connects ports in Northern Asia through the Arctic to ports in Northern Europe or even North America. And Russia is very excited about building out the Northern Sea Route as a way of increasing investment in the region, increasing revenue, offsetting some of the high cost of developing its Arctic resources, and creating a modern international shipping route that will be a great way to send the oil and gas from Russia's Arctic, either east to Asia or west to Europe. And so when you think about that, it makes sense that it's this really important economic interest to Russia, but also that they really want to protect it. And so that's another piece of the military buildup is securing control over this really vital economic area, being able to know what's going on, stop anything bad from coming in and protect it. And so I think when we talk about the Russian military buildup, 
There's two parts. There's the strategic part of it. And then there's the economic part of it. And both of them are easy to understand, right? I think they're rational reactions to Russia's position, um, but they have the effect of making its neighbors very uncomfortable. And they also are sort of in, they put Russia on this sort of tricky trajectory because on the one hand, they want to open up economically and bring in international ship traffic, but that's alarming, right? That creates security vulnerabilities. And so there's a little bit of a push-pull going on right now, which is really fascinating to watch. And a push-pull within Russia uh, in terms of ships up along their coast creating vulnerabilities for them potentially. Yes, absolutely. Hey there, listeners. We have a special four-part mini-series for you at the end of today's show, sponsored by the African Development Bank. Journalist Carol Pinot takes a look at how women across the continent have been affected by COVID, what support is needed, and how they will be essential to Africa's recovery. Stay tuned. Hey, my name is Coleman Hughes, and I'm the host of the podcast Conversations with Coleman. I think that the country is in flames already. We are headed toward the end of the American project. The ability to think and speak freely is what moves society forward, where I have honest, unfiltered conversations about the most pressing issues of our time. Our world is becoming more polarized. Partisan hatred has infected every sphere of life. You can be canceled for having opinions that depart from the consensus of a few social media. Join me every week on Conversations with Coleman as I challenge convention, question everything, and Seek the truth with an open mind. So let me layer on this um, the United States. And one maybe perspective on this would be there's a there's an internal Russian logic that you all have laid out very, very clearly. And it sounds relatively benign in terms of U.S. interests, right? They've got economic interests that they want to exploit, their own nuclear defense to, to maintain a second strike capability. So are there things that the United States should be concerned about? What, what are our interests up there and to what extent do they conflict with uh, what Russia is doing? And Gene, I'll start with you. Well, uh, it's a very good point to start on, uh, uh, just building on what Rebecca has said, because I really uh, ever since I started doing research and following Russian uh, activity in the Arctic, uh, I've been puzzled by this sense of vulnerability or insecurity that they've projected in their own rhetoric. Because until they started talking about threats in the Arctic, I don't think anybody in the United States or anywhere in NATO really thought about threatening Russian interests in the Arctic. Uh, I should also say that you know, they're making all these big investments in uh, getting uh, hydrocarbons from the ground in the Arctic at a time when their principal markets for hydrocarbons are looking to transition. Not, of course, immediately, but, uh, you know, I don't want to overstate the case, but from everything I read, the green evolution, if not necessarily revolution, is underway. So it just, makes me wonder about the utility of Russian investments, the future of Russian investments into these expensive projects that are meant to get the stuff out of the ground for decades and decades to come when the critical market in Europe is already arguably, if not oversupplied, but very competitive from other suppliers and from LNG. 
And the market in Asia, in China, uh, is very problematic because, uh, and here I'm jumping perhaps a little bit ahead of myself, but this northern sea route that they so advertise and put pin such great hopes on, uh, really, um, I guess it's a pipe dream, uh, at least the way it looks now. I don't know if it's the right metaphor in the literal sense, but uh, figuratively speaking, because if you look at the Arctic coastline of the Russian Federation, east of the Urals, there's practically nothing, nothing there. And to develop that sea route, which is still, as far as I know, is not navigable year-round, into a viable navigational option, basically going around Northeast Asia and into the Pacific, where we're talking about a coastline of thousands and thousands, following the coastline, you know, for thousands and thousands of miles, uh, where there is nothing. You know, imagine a significant incident, not even an accident. We all just witnessed what happened in the Suez Canal. Now, clearly, there are no major canals in that part of the world. It could be something weather-related, some kind of mechanical breakdown. These things apparently happen with large ships. Where will the rescue team come from? Uh, you know, certainly Russia does not have yet, and as far as I can tell, is not likely to have the infrastructure to provide the necessary support for navigation around basically this giant corner of Northeast Asia. So that route is problematic, which makes one wonder about the accessibility of Asia following uh, the northern sea route. Um, so it just makes me wonder where all that oil and gas is going to go. And again, uh, what is that uh, military program intended to defend those assets from? As far as I know, uh, our uh, uh, you know the Defense Department has no plans to invade the Russian Arctic. You know, one thing we didn't really mention is the fact that Russia has filed a legal claim with the United Nations to an even bigger portion of the Arctic seabed. So clearly they have great ambitions for growth in the Arctic region, which again, to my mind, is something that is probably driven by their aspirations to be recognized as a great power than any practical sense of economic or strategic development. So Rebecca, would you agree with that analysis? Yes, I think that was that was just, you know, very sharp and, you know, mentioning the seabed claims I think is is a great point because Denmark, Canada and Russia all have these claims to the Arctic seabed and they all converge on the North Pole, which tells you something about sort of the symbolic value of these claims because every country wants to have the North Pole. And, you know, Gene is exactly right. There is no um, business to be had in the central Arctic Ocean sea floor. It's impossibly remote. You know, the, the industry of seabed mining is in its infancy. And um, there is no company on Earth that has any plans to be able to mine the central Arctic Ocean seabed. So these claims are at best, you know, extremely prospective um, and at worst, really more about sort of posturing, um, being able to claim the North Pole, I think. And, and so I think that's very spot on. There's, there's a lot of um, 
I think a lot of what, our, what Russia is doing in the Arctic right now, and particularly some of their sort of more splashy PR um, stunts, like that submarine <laughs> planting a flag on the Arctic yeah. seabed, you know, that's just about getting attention. Um, and it's about sort of part of the myth-making that's going on in, in Russia right now. Um, and part of it is about the domestic audience. You know, Russian people identify, you know, Russia, Russians identify as an Arctic nation, and they're very proud of that. And they have a long history of Arctic exploration, which Jean touched on. And so I think there's a fair amount of domestic hay to be made in, um, in underscoring Russia's sort of great Arctic role and also in sort of um, stoking fears about, you know, new vulnerabilities that are created by, by a melting Arctic. So I think there's an important element of domestic signaling as well. So this is really interesting um, because one reads articles about whether NATO ought to have a mission in in um, the Arctic and, and all that, which frames this in very stark militaristic terms. So let me ask you about the way that the Arctic, this region has been governed um, in relative recent years, which is, as, as I understand, relatively successful kind of multilateral, formal and informal agreements in which some of the powers we haven't talked about, some of those middle powers have played a really constructive role. And there's, uh, you know, Tony Blinken was up at the Arctic Council. Um, what is that current management structure and is it well suited? to the new era. And Gene, I'll start with you. Well, I think you're talking about almost two parallel universes here because there is the whole military dimension that uh, we just referred to in our conversation. But then there is the Arctic Council, which is uh, a gathering, a forum of the Arctic states, plus several others who have in, that have interest in the Arctic. And that is supposed to be a forum for non-military issues uh, to deal with issues of climate change, uh, fish, you know, management of Arctic resources, sort of really kind of a you know milk toast issues where uh, everybody can say, "Look, we're getting along fine," and really, you know, to use uh, perhaps a not very appropriate metaphor, but. To my mind, uh, this, you know, call it somewhat fake cooperation within the Arctic Council is an attempt, certainly by Russia, as I see, to put some lipstick on the pig. Because beyond the Arctic Council, Russian posturing has been very aggressive, has been intended to project an image to domestic audiences of a hostile NATO seeking to grab what is uh, Russia's national patrimony. Um, and that, in turn, has inflamed, as we mentioned before, a great deal of concern in the United States and among our NATO allies, especially those that share a common border with Russia. And, um, you know, I have really struggled for you know, for, for you know, to, to find a uh, a good document that would outline what U.S. interests in the Arctic are, and, and I really haven't found one. Uh, there was sort of a national strategy put forth, I believe, in 2013 by the Obama administration, 
um, there have been strategies put forth by the United States Army, United States Navy, predictably Coast Guard, Air Force, the Marines. Um, but my sense is that, you know, when you have so many strategies, it means that we really don't have a national strategy for the Arctic. So basically is a response as the response, the response in the Arctic by the United States, we're falling on our ironclad commitment to our NATO allies. With the Arctic now being part of the 70-year-old standoff since the crisis with Ukraine uh, in 2014, the standoff between Russia and NATO. So it becomes our strategy by default. Yeah. And Rebecca, do you see it similarly? I think it's, yes. You know, I think there's a couple different threads that are important to pull out when we're thinking about sort of security interests in the Arctic. And so, you know, Gene's totally right. One of those is um, that what's going on, particularly in the, um, the North Atlantic Arctic area, is a piece of what's happening more broadly in Europe between NATO and Russia. And that is part of the decline that has been going on since Ukraine and even Georgia. Russia is back militarily, and they are engaging in a whole host of really problematic actions, from carving off pieces of smaller countries, to interfering with U.S. elections, to assassinating people around Europe. And in the Arctic part of Europe. So when we're thinking about sort of the Nordic region, um, we're seeing the Russians jam GPS in northern Norway, um, conduct very snap, large-scale military exercises in the Barents and in the Norwegian Sea. Um, we're seeing more military exercises and operations, including submarine operations, than we have been seeing since the depths of the Cold War. And so there's this level of um, really disruptive activity that is very problematic. And you can combine that with some new Russian capabilities, like their next generation submarines and some of their new generations of weapons and sensors, and you come up with a very threatening picture. And that's um, a big part of what is concerning our allies. Um, you know, Norway, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, um, Iceland. Um, that's part of the sort of Arctic NATO group. And, you know, it's of a piece of what's happening across sort of Western Europe. I would argue that that's not necessarily about the Arctic, though. That is much more about um, the Russia-NATO relationship. And a piece of that is playing out in a part of the Arctic. When it comes to sort of Russian economic development farther east, um, you know, east of the Kola, deeper into along northern sea route, you know, as we move along sort of the northern coastline of Russia, that's much more about economics. Because as Gene said, there's not much up there. It's very far away from Europe at that point. There is, um, there's not a lot of sort of NATO's, NATO interests um, in the eastern northern sea route, for example. And so I think that's very it's a very different set of interests and concerns. And I, I often encourage people to think about sort of a two-level game. So there's the Russia-NATO relationship, which is very, very problematic, but is not necessarily about the Arctic. And then there's what's happening in the Arctic itself, which 
from a military perspective, if we're talking about the whole Arctic basin, right, the central Arctic Ocean, it's a transit route for intercontinental missiles. And it has been since the Cold War. It's the shortest route between the United States and Russia. And so from a sort of missile defense perspective, yeah, we think about the Arctic as a vector. Again, there's nothing sort of in the Arctic itself. It just sort of happens to be the shortest route for missiles transiting between continents, right? Um, and so I think it's worth kind of pulling apart into those different pieces because it tells us a little bit more about how to think about different kinds of security interests in the region. That, that's fabulous. And given that analysis, and Gina, if you agree with it, if you want to um, you know, disagree with any, that's fine as well. But what does that mean in terms of what the appropriate U.S. or maybe U.S. and NATO responses are in security terms? We're back to a version of the Cold War in around the Kola Peninsula in the European part of the Arctic, so to speak, Western Arctic. But I think uh, we should look at this picture uh, more uh, strategically, more holistically, and recognize that actually Russian capabilities are not all that great. And in some bizarre, ironic ways, the Russians are now looking at a transformation in Europe where um, their own disruptive behavior, their abandonment of critical security arrangements in the European theater, such as the Conventional Forces in Europe Treaty and the INF Treaty, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, which we, the United States, pulled out of after Russia blatantly violated it, something that was recognized by all our allies, remarkably. Russia is, or Russian assets in the far north, but also in central Russia, are much more vulnerable in the event of a crisis because prior restrictions on U.S. deployments of certain weapon systems, such as intermediate-range missiles, land-based, we already have sea-based, uh, are now uh, could could now become uh, a fact of life, um, and um, a lot of those so-called formidable capabilities that Russia has deployed and developed, those um, A2AD anti-air and uh, area denial bubbles, so to speak, that look very very ominous on maps with these concentric circles. Um, they, too, look much worse on paper than in real life, and there have been several analyses done uh, that suggest that uh, NATO more than has enough capabilities to pierce those bubbles. So it's a mixture of perhaps not necessarily good news, but not bad news, and bad news, because the situation is becoming not as dire for the United States and its allies as some might paint. On the, on the one hand, and on the other hand, it's a more brittle situation. We're looking at a very tense standoff in the north of Europe that is so important to Russia, legitimately so, um, but as an extension of that, also extremely important to us. Uh, and we already have prior episodes when, for example, I think in 1990 or 1995, Rebecca, correct me please if I'm wrong, at one point, uh, Russian uh, strategic forces went on alert in response to what Russian radars mistakenly thought uh, took for an attack, but in reality was a, a weather balloon 
launched, I believe, from Norway. Correct me if I'm wrong, please, Rebecca. You probably know this better. Um, but those kinds of situations at a time when the critical channels of communications and uh, uh, steps to improve stability between our countries and with our allies are uh, have been weakened, uh, that's, that's not a happy state of affairs. Rebecca, what would you add to that picture or provide in terms of a, a different sense of what the U.S. or U.S. and NATO should do in response to these strategic concerns? You know, I think recognizing that the security dilemma that's emerging in the Western Arctic is part of what's happening in Western Europe and Northern Europe. And I think it's, it would be valuable to sort of group that together and then think about the broader Arctic region in a different way, because while there is sort of this overarching concern about, you know, missile defense across the Arctic basin, that is really um, the only significant military, immediate military concern. As Jean said, and I think as you mentioned, Brian, we're not really concerned with Russia attacking Canada or Alaska across the Central Arctic. You know, one of the, the Canadian, I think the Canadian Minister of Defense a few years ago was asked at a press conference, you know, what would you do if the Russians landed in Nunavut? And he said, well, I'd send out a search and rescue party. Um, <laughs> and you know, we don't really worry about sort of an imminent invasion of Alaska, right? Um, you know, we worry about, of course, homeland defense and, and missile defense. And it's very important that we're modernizing our radars and our missile defense in Alaska and across North America through the NORAD NORTHCOM construct. You know, it's very important. There's new technology out there and we have to keep a pace. But in terms of sort of an immediate military threat, we're really you know, the focus is much more on that sort of Western European, you know, Baltics, Nordics area. And so those are sort of different areas. And when we think about the broader Arctic basin, there is a lot of um, stability there. There is some good cooperation that it's important to protect. You know, we have very few touch points with Russia right now. And one of the very few of them is the Arctic Council. Um, it's the Arctic Coast Guard Forum, which brings together the eight Arctic Coast Guards to talk about combating marine oil spills and saving um, mariners and, you know, combating uh, IUU fishing. And so the Coast Guard Forum is an important um, area of some kind of contact. And there's a great deal of scientific collaboration in the Arctic region, which is tremendously important right now. Um, and it's worth noting that, you know, in the late 70s, I think it was 77, in the depths of the Cold War, the U.S. and Russia signed the Polar Bear Treaty because, we all love polar bears. And even in the middle of the Cold War, we can recognize that we want to preserve them. And so, you know, Eugene called it milk toast issues. But I think, you know, the sort of environmental and human security pieces are, it may be sort of lower level politics, but it is still of value, particularly in the current context, when we're not talking about very much with Russia at all. So I think kind of, recognizing that in the broader Arctic, we have some shared interests at, you know, lower levels, and it's important to keep those alive while we continue to manage this NATO-Russia problem in Western Europe, but sort of try and keep those separate. I, I do worry about sort of militarizing the entire Arctic, because 
we, we managed to kind of keep some channels of communication alive during the Cold War. And that was at a time when there was far less going on in the world and we didn't have to worry about China. So I think it's important to keep at least some contacts alive while we deal with the security problem um, in Northwestern Europe. So as we close, um, this has been a fascinating conversation, and both the rhetoric as well as the Arctic seem to be heating up a bit, not from you all, but from in the, in the discussion. And I guess what I'd like to ask each of you to weigh in on is what is the biggest misstep or mistake that we could make that could put us on a trajectory of far greater danger and concern in the region? Gene, happy to start with you. Um, well, I would pick up on where Rebecca just left off, and I would say, in a nutshell, we shouldn't panic about it. I did call it milk toast issues, but I do like milk and toast, and uh, <laughs> I think those are great sources of nutrition, and I think we should <laughs> stick with them. And there is a tendency, you know, Rebecca, I saw your name quoted in the Wall Street Journal the other day in in a piece that I no, this is not a reflection on anything you said, but, you know, uh, it was a piece clearly written uh, by reporters who were invited by the Russian military or the foreign ministry or whoever to travel to the Arctic. There were parallel pieces done by other news outlets, including, I think, CNN. And they all write a story about Russia's military in the Arctic, which comes out extremely lopsided. I think CNN perhaps is the worst here because a few weeks ago they had this you know, drumbeat, the Russians are deploying a new strategic torpedo, nuclear torpedo to attack the west or east coast, well, e either one of the coasts of the United States. And it was completely taken out of context, completely out of proportions. And I think we really should have a much more measured, strategic view, realistic view of the significance of the Arctic. I think that the uh, approach of the Biden administration focusing on climate change as a framing issue for a lot of our policies, including the Arctic, I think, is exactly right. And, uh, you know, to come back to the question of what should we be doing in terms of the security requirements, we're doing a lot already. So I don't think we need to, you know, run uh, to uh, the Defense Department and demand that they build uh, tons more of icebreakers and new systems to counter purported Russian threat in the Arctic. Uh, let's, let's just take a breath and, you know, cool it a bit. Rebecca, concerns that you have of missteps? You know, I, I agree with a lot of what Jean said, so I'm not, I'll sort of steer away from that because I don't want to repeat those points. Um, I think they were good ones. Um, one other thing that we haven't really spent much time talking about, but I think you see a lot in this sort of hyped up media coverage um, is the sort of China threat. Um, you know, China is somehow going to try to seize control of the Arctic, which is, you know, absurd. It's nowhere near the Arctic. Um, it has no sovereign territory there. Um, and, you know, China and Russia have some economic alignment, right? Russia sells oil. China buys oil. Um, Russia wants to develop a shipping lane. China does a lot of shipping. But they have relatively um, divergent sort of strategic interests. And I think that there is um, a risk of, uh, I think we have to be careful to not drive those two any closer. And U.S. rhetoric often sort of lumps Russia and China together. And I think the more we talk about them as sort of a pair, the more we risk sort of creating that. Um, and so I think it's important to um, 
keep them very separate when we think about threats and challenges in the Arctic region. Um, they're two very different actors who certainly both pose challenges to the United States, but in the Arctic, those are very different kinds of challenges. And so I do worry about um, the risk we run in terms of lumping them together rhetorically and creating the very problem that, you know, we're sort of warning ourselves about, if that makes sense. And I want to thank you, Rebecca Pincus of the U.S. Naval War College, as well as Gene Rummer of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. I think this conversation has been incredibly clarifying of the situation in the Arctic, what is to be taken seriously and what can create a danger in being overblown. Thanks so much for being here on Deep Dish. Thanks. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. And that was the episode, Is Fear of Great Power Competition in the Arctic Overheated? from the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. My thanks to Brian Hansen and the Chicago Council on Global Affairs for sharing their podcast with us. And now, as promised, we have the first of our four-part mini-series sponsored by the African Development Bank on how women are going to be essential to recovery in the wake of COVID-19. Take a listen. In Africa, COVID-19 was both a health and economic crisis. For the health crisis, Africa actually fared better than expected. But the economic impact has been more difficult, and it has not been equally shared. Women are more likely than men to have been negatively affected by the pandemic. Hello, I'm Carol Pino, and I'm joined today by Atsuka Toda, the Acting Vice President for Agriculture, Human, and Social Development at the African Development Bank, to discuss African women's essential role in the post-COVID recovery. This is the first of a four-part sponsored mini-series from the African Development Bank looking at how women have been affected by COVID, what support is needed, and how women will be essential to recovery. Women lost jobs like those in the service sectors, suffered from vulnerability due to loss in income and opportunities. And for those that continue to work from home, COVID exposed issues of unfair distribution of labor, unpaid responsibility, and increased work burden. When these crises happen, the populations that are more at risk actually get hit harder. So it's really about how exponentially women get the brunt of the crisis. Women in Africa make up 50% of the workforce and play a major role in agriculture. They're starting businesses at a faster rate than men, and they are more likely to reinvest their earnings into their communities. So how essential are gender-focused policies to economic recovery? It is critical that gender equality, women entrepreneurship, women's empowerment is at the center of the solution when it comes to economic resilience on the continent. This is the path to putting Africa back on the economic growth trajectory. Policies incorporating women entrepreneurs in Africa in the future. But it won't happen on its own. Policy changes that break down barriers to entry and increase women's political participation are key. Women have to be part of the decision-making process. They need to be part of the access to services, to trainings. They need to be accelerating employability, and they need to be having jobs to get income. Empowering women through access to finance is absolutely key, and access to markets. The potential is great. 
and necessary for the economic recovery of the continent as a whole. The analogy that our president always uses is that a plane cannot fly with one wing. It needs two wings to fly, and that includes women. True indeed. Thanks for listening to this special four-part miniseries on women and Africa's COVID recovery. To see a video of my conversation with Atsuka Todo and others, head to foreignpolicy.com. And for more on the African Development Bank, check out afdb.org. That's all for Farm Policy Playlist. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at farmpolicy.com. This show is hosted by me, Amy McKinnon, and is produced by Rob Sachs, Rosie Julin, and Simone Perez. Our executive producer of podcasts is Dan Efron. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris, and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about. You lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. (laughs) And Seth Rogen. (laughs) So if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.